tonight if you turn in your Bibles to the third chapter, the little tiny book of Joel, the third and final chapter, we're going to pick up in verse 16 and a study that I've entitled uh, Israel's Finest Hour. And you might think that's a little bit of a strange title considering the subject matter because when we really look at this passage, the first 16 verses are describing a period of time that will be the tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ, of course, and right before that will be the battle of Armageddon. So a very tumultuous, very difficult, very harsh uh, wars like we've never known on this earth will be transpiring at that point in time. And I want to draw your attention to the reasoning. And as we saw it last time, there are three basic reasons that the Lord is going to cause all of these things to come about. And I would also tell you at the same time, the reason for the tribulation is not just the wrath of God. It is also the love of God. We have a tough time with that. It's hard for us to understand how God in his love could allow, even cause, and Jesus himself literally come back and fight the battle of Armageddon because he says in the book of Revelation, who will go for us? Who is worthy to loose the scrolls? And ultimately, the Lord Jesus himself has to go and fight that final stages of the battle of Armageddon. So it will be Jesus literally as a warrior king. But it's his love for his people that motivates him to do that. And it gives you a sense of how deep that love is when you think about it. So there is a point to it. Very often people who don't know the Lord look at these things that we discuss, like the Battle of Armageddon, like the Tribulation, the last three and a half years of it specifically, and they conclude wrongly that if God actually would allow something like that or do something like that, then he is neither to be loved nor followed because they can't see the love of God in the justice of God. They cannot see the love of God in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in his love. And so tonight, Israel's finest hour. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that in this passage contained in these things that when we first glance at them are difficult to understand is the depth of your love. Lord, how much you love the Jews, how much you love your people. Lord, how much your word means to you. And Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that what you say you will do, Lord, gives us great hope because that same word that pronounces that one day judgment will fall on the wicked also says that for by grace you've been saved and through faith. Lord, we thank you that both are true. Lord, that you are absolute in your love for us and you're absolute in truth. You would never deceive us. And so, Lord, we do believe that Israel's finest hour is coming. One day, all Israel will be saved. And we are looking forward, Lord, to the things that preceded. Not because we want to be here for wars, but, Lord, because we know that ultimately you will deal with sin. You'll deal it a death blow. You did it at the cross. We've been waiting for the culmination for 2,000 years. And God, we look forward to the day when you bring it all to pass. And so, Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We give you this time. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Verse 16. 
And the Lord also will roar from Zion. And remember, as I said before, you have to now see Jesus as the conquering king. He is literally the lion of the tribe of Judah now. He's no longer the humble and meek Messiah. He is the king who's come for his kingdom. And in stating that, you have to realize that he has intended all along to come back for his kingdom, to be on this earth. Again, as we look at that, we see what is going to happen, and we almost shudder at the thought. There must only be one way or the Lord Jesus wouldn't do it this way. That's why I trust his sovereign plans. If there were any other way, it would have already happened. If everyone was going to cave in and give in and give up and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I believe it would have already happened. There would have been no point for all of the wars of mankind, the history of the earth for the last couple of thousand years in the age of grace. Uh, Then you could say God was a tyrant. But I believe because these things have been uh, in some way or shape or fashion been happening for quite some time, but not in the totality of what we see in Scripture, that in fact this is the only way for God to finally do what God wants to do. And so it's part of his plan. And so it says, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens, the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. Please underline that. He has always been a shelter for his people. He has never forsaken his people, no matter how few of them there are. Amen? Case in point, Abraham and his family. Case in point, Lot. Case in point, the diaspora. As the Jews were dispersed all over the globe, the Lord finally brought them back into their land. God has always preserved a remnant of his people. And so he says, the strength of the children of Israel... That they will be that. And now he says why he's doing these things. So that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That is phrased in such a way that it applies to what was directly said prior to it in the Hebrew. So in other words, he's talking about the Jewish people. He says, I will be a shelter for them. That they, he, they will be his strength, and he says to them and of them, so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Amen? So there's a purpose to it. And remember the reason all these wars happened was because of mankind's treatment of the Jews. Because the Jews were dispersed throughout the nations of the world, because they divided up the, the land that the Lord gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because they mistreated the Jewish people. That's the reason these things are going to come upon the earth. And so as we look at it from that view, and he says a very interesting thing, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Can you imagine that there's any way possible that that's going to happen today? Unless the Lord does something miraculous, that is not happening today. Let me tell you why. Because when you go to the Temple Mount today, There's a couple of things that are very problematic. Number one, there's no temple on the Temple Mount. Amen? Go to Jerusalem today, you know what you find? Two mosques. The Al-Aqsa, which is a large meeting hall, and the Dome of the Rock, which is the second most holy place in all of Islam. So as you look at the, the Temple Mount today, 
and you can imagine Jesus ruling and reigning from there, it's not going to happen. It's ruled and reigned right now by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the Islamic leader, and his police force, the Quaif. And so as they roam around the Temple Mount, if you happen to be a Jew and you happen to be wearing a male, a kippah, you're wearing a skull cap, you're wearing a yarmulke, as we call them, if you happen to be wearing one of those and you go to the lines to get onto the Temple Mount, you will be followed by at least two of the Muslim Islamic guards that guard the Temple Mount every day. There are not going to be any Jews on the Temple Mount anytime soon. So this is obviously talking about some time that's later in our future. Because it says, so that you will know that I am your Lord, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy. <clears throat> right now, if you go to Jerusalem, there's something I can tell you. Jerusalem is not a holy city. It contains a chunk of the western wall, the former temple of Herod that was destroyed by the Roman emperor Titus in AD 70. There's a chunk of it. If you were to unbury all of it, about 15, 1,600 feet long. A vast majority of that is underground, and only 185 feet of it remain above ground that you can see. The rest of it, pretty much a tourist zone. All kinds of shops, places that you could go. It's not a holy city. And so there's some work that God has to do for that time to come to place that these things could even remotely be talked about. And so now he goes on and says, No aliens shall ever pass through her again. How in the world could that possibly be true? Let me give you a little hint. The gospel came to the Jews first, amen, and then to the Gentiles. The Jews did what? Rejected the Messiah. So when the Jews finally see Messiah, there's only going to be one type of person left on this earth. That'd be saints. There won't be any saints left. That time's coming. But it's not next week. And so he says, and it will come to pass, he uses that phrase that we know very well, in that day, speaking of the very last days, that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. The fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. Notice where it flows from. The house of the Lord. Literally meaning the temple of the Lord. Right now, if you were to go on top of the temple mount, the only thing that would flow from up there would probably be blood. Because it's the most hotly contested 27 acres on planet Earth. Down into the Valley of Acacias, also known as the Hinnom Valley and the Kadron Valley. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of the violence against the people of Judah. Notice again he gives the reasoning for it. For they shall have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. And so the Lord begins to remind us that this giant battle that's described in the first 16 verses of this chapter has a purpose. Jesus is going to come back to the earth again. And when he does so, he's going to take over these hostile anti-Semitic nations. It's very clear in his word that when the Lord comes back, uh, he's going to deal with what's happened to the Jewish people. 
Zechariah actually prophesied in Zechariah chapter 14. You don't need to turn there. But if you wish to look there at some point in time, there in the second verse it says, For I will gather the nations together in battle against Jerusalem, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And so Jesus is going to come back and set those captives free. Luke records in in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, And they, Israel, will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trampled again by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are complete. The times of the Gentiles are not complete, and if you go to Jerusalem today, it's literally trampled by the Gentiles. It's primarily a Gentile city. There are roughly 804,000 Jews that live in Jerusalem today. So if this prophecy of Zechariah were to come to pass today, about 400,000 Jews would be led away captive. I believe this is referring to the very last days, literally to the tribulation, the last three and a half years of it, that more Jews will go into captivity. And so though these things have been partially fulfilled at times, and of course, Again, when Titus sacked Rome, or Titus sacked Jerusalem in in AD 70, it was partially true. The Jews were out of the land. And really, if you look at Jewish history, if you go back to the history of the Jewish state as it stands today, it was not until 1967 when the Israeli Defense Forces liberated Jerusalem that a Jew had set foot on the Temple Mount for almost 1,800 years. And so it wasn't until, matter of fact, some of you were actually here when Dr. Yehuda Hochman uh, spoke. Yehuda was, if you've ever seen that famous picture of the liberation of the Temple Mount, there are four soldiers standing in that picture. Uh, He is one of the four. So this refers to a time that's yet future to us today because Jerusalem is still trampled by the Gentiles, because it wasn't but a little while longer, and the Jews gave the Temple Mount back to the Arabs to try and make peace. And so the Lord begins to give us the picture of the things that are going to happen. And so as you look at these things, basically what's now being said is is the Lord Jesus himself is going to show himself strong on behalf of the Lord. And I think, nope, that's, uh, that's where we want to be. Okay. So Jesus, the great deliverer, is going to show himself strong on their behalf. Uh, he's going to then begin to march through Edom. And, and if you notice these scriptures that I have up here, just jot them down. Because a lot of times people look at the, look at the Bible and they go, well, where's that found? Here's where that is found. And when people say, well, you know, that's kind of obscure. No, it's not obscure at all. If you can see there, there are 47 scriptures there that reference what the Lord Jesus is going to do in the very last days with regard to gathering together the prisoners that have been taken during the tribulation. That's a whole bunch of God talking about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. So I do believe he's going to be coming back. Uh, It's interesting that modern-day Jordan today, as you look at it, is kind of a pseudo-friend, if you will, uh, at least in name only to Israel. But make no mistake about it, in two shakes of a lamb's tail, I don't know how fast that is, but I've heard it's very fast. 
two shakes of a lamb's tail, uh, they would turn and join with every Arab neighbor that they have uh, to exterminate the Jewish people. There is no doubt about it. When you go to the various holy sites along the Jordan River, specifically the baptismal sites, it's always interesting because on one side of the Jordan River, which is not as wide as this room, by the way, it's not like a big, beautiful, babbling brook. The lower half of it kind of looks like a, well, it looks like the canals out in El Centro, basically. It's kind of got reeds on each side, and it's kind of greenish-brown. It's kind of yucky looking. But on one side's the Jordanian army. On the other side's the Israeli Defense Forces, and they are armed. They don't like each other. They've been enemies for a very, very, very long time. And so some of Israel will go into captivity in the very last days, and as you look at especially Ezekiel 38, 39, you can see very clearly that the Lord is going to have to do some some work to gather back the children of Israel. They'll never be completely displaced from their land again. That's clear. But what is also clear is there's going to be some serious warfare in the Middle East. So when we look at things like we're going to look at on New Year's Eve and what Iran specifically is doing right now, I don't know whether you caught it in the newspaper. I'll give you a little heads up. Uh, Afghanistan has declared us an enemy. So we didn't learn much from the Russians who fought in Afghanistan for about 10 years, and then we went and fought in Afghanistan for about 10 years, and the moment that we left, thanks to our president, uh, guess what? They said, we're going to become an ally of Iran, and so now they have an intra-border relationship again. That's because... God set up who is going to be allied in the very last days. And when God says that's who's going to be allied in the very last days, that's who's going to be allied in the very last days. The third thing, Jesus will assemble that remnant population, that, that those, those that go to captivity in, in Israel. And again, for sake of time, there's, there's no point in us going through every one of these scriptures. But I will tell you this, when you look at it, it becomes very clear that in order for that to happen, given the military might of the nation Israel, there's going to have to be some very strategic things that happen before that happens. There's going to be warfare like we haven't seen in a very long time because Israel is nuclear armed. Very well nuclear armed. They have at least 30, possibly as many as 60 nuclear weapons. That's enough to take care of every single enemy that surrounds them, at least their capital cities. They have the ability to deliver those nuclear weapons as well. And so if it gets really dicey, nuclear warfare could be the very thing that's talked about here, that fire would be rained down on those who remain. And so I just want to encourage you, read your newspaper from the eyes of Scripture. And so when you look at Israel's going to suffer great affliction and great desolation, some people wrongly teach that because Israel's back in the land, They're completely safe and nothing bad will ever happen to them again. That's simply not true. And so as we look at them, matter of fact, our own president has said, and I quote, Israel can take care of itself. That's not true. Matter of fact, God is going to have to miraculously intervene to save them again. And so Israel is going to suffer affliction and desolation. Jesus is going to have to come back and gather them again from the rest of the world, as we as we see in our passage before us tonight. And, and so when you look at these things, Jesus is going to have to bring all these captives back to a place to where he can then gather all these people together at Armageddon. And then after he fights that battle, he's actually going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. 
These are crazy things to talk about at this point in time in human history. And so why do we need to understand these things? What, what is it that, you know, the Lord really is trying to tell us when we, when we think about some of these things? Uh, and I'll tell you this. There's a whole bunch of things. First, it kind of reveals the, the depth of the rage. Do you remember how much time the enemy spent trying to wipe out the Messiah? He tried to keep him from being born, didn't he? Herod decreed that all the firstborn male children should be killed, amen, throughout all the land of you. That didn't work. There's been a war against anybody who's been related to the Messiah ever since. And so, um, I don't know why this is not working. There we go. That's not it either. There we go. I think we're going to go back to the old way, Lisa. Technology. We're working on a couple of new things, so we'll see if we can get it to work before next day. First kind of reveals the nature of Satan and what he's what he has planned against Israel. Uh, God's going to have to purify the church to do that, because right now even a lot of the church uh, doesn't really care for the nation Israel all that much. As a matter of fact, there's an awful lot of the church that believes that Israel is irrelevant. Um, secondarily, kind of gives us insight uh, into God's heart, because he restored us. He also wants to restore his people. Amen? And thirdly, um, if you look at your Bible and all these passages I just gave you to jot down, I don't know how many of them you got, but if you got two or three from each category, as you look at these things, you look at what the prophet Isaiah said, the prophet Zacharias has, has to say, what the book of Revelation has to say, as you look at the sum and total of what Scripture says about Israel in the last days, you can't help but come to the conclusion that there's no other answer than the Lord God is going to have to come and defend his people. Because right now, Israel doesn't have a friend in the world, including us, really. I mean, we claim to be their ally. But every day that goes by, it seems like we're less and less concerned. And so a vast majority of the ter- church has begun to adopt replacement theology. That just means that Israel is no longer valid that their time on this earth as God's chosen people is over. The church, us, we Christians have replaced them. And now you blend all these things together and it just has to do with the church and there is no plan for Israel. You cannot understand these passages. They make no sense whatsoever if you view your Bible that way. And that's why there are whole groups of people theologically that completely ignore the minor prophets, completely ignore the book of Revelation, completely ignore the prophetic passages of the book of Isaiah, completely ignore the prophetic parts of Daniel, because they don't make any sense in light of anything other than Israel having a very huge part in the very last days of mankind's journey on this earth. And so I encourage you that what's going to happen as these things unfold, you're going to see Israel in several different states. Uh, firstly, apostate for three and a half years. During the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you're not going to be here. If you're a believer in Christ, the rapture will have happened. You're going to be gone. You're going to be in heaven. Amen? You're not going to see it. But Israel is going to join forces literally with the Antichrist for the first three and a half years, not in a political allegiance, not in a military alliance, but in worship. They're going to worship him just like the rest of the world. Not so much in the temple, because he's going to allow them to rebuild that third temple that's going to be necessary for Jesus to sit in when he comes back. 
Matter of fact, that, I believe, is what will stimulate them to say, this guy's the real deal. He's the first political ruler in two-plus thousand years, whenever it happens. If it's, you know, in the next couple of weeks, then it will be 2014 years. But if it happens any time in the future, then it's going to be a time that's yet future to us to this day. But the bottom line is, there's no temple in Jerusalem. There's no place for the Jewish people to worship. And so Israel will just kind of go apostate. They're going to worship the Antichrist, join his regime. They're going to be reprobate like everybody else. Uh, Then they're going to be very apostolic. The second three and a half years of the tribulation, they're going to be the guys that are going to be proselytizing the rest of the world for the gospel because they're going to see that, hey, this didn't work out so well. This guy broke his treaty. Uh, The prophet Daniel tells us about that. Zechariah chapter 12, Obadiah, Isaiah chapter uh, four tells us of these things, and so uh, all of a sudden they're going to be the apostolic group, and then they're going to be in flight. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says, you know what, all Israel is going to be scattered. Matter of fact, he's going to tell them, go to the hills, hide yourselves. You remember that passage? That's because the Antichrist is going to unleash hell on earth on them during the second three and a half years of the tribulation. You're going to see Israel go into prison. They're literally going to be captured Again, the passage we just saw in Zechariah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 42 says that. Uh, Psalm 102 alludes to the Israelites being captive. Luke chapter 21, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, all of those passages say, you know what, at some point in time, after they've become a nation again, they're also going to go back into captivity again. Don't miss that. Because part of the reason we have problems in the world realizing that, that Scripture is true is because people spiritualize this passage of Scripture. They go, oh, it'll never happen. You know, Israel's the strongest military in the Middle East. It's what our president believes. He believes they can defend themselves. Not against the wrath of Satan, they can't. Not against the wrath of the Antichrist, they can't. And so the Deliverer will roar from Zion. That's the reason for it. He's going to have to save them. And in all of this, we just have to simply acknowledge the sovereign plans of God. Can I just remind you that God has the total right to do whatever he wants? Amen? He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. We don't tell God what he's going to do. He tells us what he's going to do. And so he's the one that said Jesus is finally going to rule over all the nations there in Revelation chapter 20. So if he's got to destroy most of the earth to make that happen, that's his deal. God has the right to tell us who he wants to rule. Amen? In this passage, he says Jesus is going to rule. That the lion's going to roar. And then he's going to rule. And so he has the right to do that. Political alliances and allegiances aren't going to matter when Jesus says, I'm coming back and it's over. He's going to do whatever he wants. He has the right to choose where. The whole world is clamoring right now. Just forget about Israel. There are multiple plans that have been put forth in the last 50 years. Either get Israel out of that land, give them someplace else, kind of disperse them again to the rest of the world, to take and move. How many times you realize that we do not even have our own embassy? Our own embassy is not in Jerusalem. Do you know why that is? So we don't stir up trouble in the world. We don't even recognize what God says is true. That's the Jewish capital. 
and yet we don't recognize it. God has the right to call his people, his people, and his capital, his capital. And it doesn't matter who says it ain't so, it's so. And so you, you can take it or leave it, but I'm going to the bank that God said it, and I believe it. So the Jewish capital is the capital of the Jewish people. It's also the capital of God's land that he gave them to inhabit. And anybody that tries to take it away ultimately is going to pay the price for it. So you don't want to be telling the Jews they ought to give up Jerusalem like we have done and put our embassy, because you always put it in the capital city of that country, we put our embassy in Tel Aviv, the commercial capital. And God, of course, chooses how he's going to have all these things unfold. And this is the strange thing to, to us. God chose the city of Jerusalem, but he also is choosing military conflict. You can't help but come to the inescapable conclusion that God has actually chosen to bring about war on this earth. People don't like that. There are a lot of people that want God to just stay in a fluffy little box. And, you know, he comes out every once in a while and sprinkles some blessings on people. But they don't like the righteous God, the God who hates sin, the God who's made commands and demands of mankind, the God who repeatedly has chastised his own chosen people to show us that he's not playing games. Because if there's any group of people on earth that have suffered for their rebelliousness against God, it's the Jews, amen? And yet they're his chosen people. So I would say that we would be pretty wrong to come to the conclusion that God doesn't mean that he's going to do these things. That somehow it's, it's just not going to happen. It is going to happen. And it might not be too long from now that these things begin to unfold. People don't like that, and especially people who don't know the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 3 says this in verse 17. At that time, speaking of the last days, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all of the nations shall be gathered into it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. That's what Jeremiah said. That's not ever been a truth yet. But God's word says it. I believe it. It will happen. Psalm 132 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, which is another name. Matter of fact, Zion is actually the name for the old city that lies directly to the south side of the Temple Mount. That's actually the name of that area of Jerusalem. Zion has been desired for his dwelling place. For this is my resting place, he says, forever. And there I will dwell in it, for I desire it. So from God's perspective, the Muslims can do whatever they want with the Temple Mount temporarily. The Romans can wipe the Temple off the Temple Mount. God's word says that he's building a third temple. It's recorded in the book of Ezekiel. Amen? Chapter 40, 42. Read it. It says there's going to be another temple. God says it's because I'm going to dwell there. And so when you look at this, really the battle of Armageddon is just the zeal of a, of a very jealous king. A king that, you know, to you and I, we look at it and it, it's hard to imagine, but it is love being borne out. That military conflict will be the only way that the Lord can accomplish those things. And because he loves the Jewish people, because he loves righteousness, uh, it's going to be a real battle. And it's so that he can usher in a time of peace. 
We call it the millennial reign of Christ. Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6 says this, For the Lord shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. We don't like to hear things like that, amen? He's talking about a day that's future. That means that there are going to be people who will be in power during the time of the Antichrist. They're going to lose their lives. He shall judge among the nations. He'll fill the places with the dead bodies. He'll execute the heads of many countries. It's what your Bible says. But when God does something like that, he does it for a singular motivation. Ultimately, to bring about his perfect plan and his perfect way, which is a way of love. And so these things, we need to kind of get to know the Jesus who's portrayed as the great lamb, but we also need the one that's the lion. Amen? Because the world's not heading the right direction right now, in case you hadn't noticed. It's a pretty sick, demented place. In many, many, many ways. So it's out of love that Jesus is capable of doing uh, these things, like fighting the Battle of Armageddon. It's going to be the most violent war that's ever happened on the face of the earth. If you read Daniel chapter 11, Revelation chapter 6, uh, it's, it's rather staggering. The Lord himself gathering everybody together into the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. There in Revelation 16, it describes that final chapter, that final battle. It's hideous. The term Armageddon, which is really from two Hebrew words, Armageddon, as you look at that particular place, it's not very big. Okay? It's, it's a valley It's about 15 miles wide. It's about 20 miles long. And yet it says that millions of people will die there. So it gives you an idea of exactly how powerful the Antichrist is going to be in those very last days. Because the whole world is going to literally flock there only to be destroyed. It doesn't mean that every person on earth is going to go into the Valley of, of Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel. But the whole world will be judged there. And so I do believe that, that all of the world's armies will at least be represented in that area of the world at that time. And so the Lord's going to gather them together. And he says, you know what? This is how I'm going to do it. So when people say, well, you know, I don't know why the Middle East is such a powder keg. I don't know why they can't all just get along. I don't know why Israel doesn't give up more land and just create peace. I don't know why this. And I don't know why. I don't know why Syria, you know, they don't just make a peace pact with Syria. Because God said they're not ever going to make a peace pact with them. Ever. It isn't going to happen. And no amount of political wrangling is ever going to cause it to come to pass until the Lord Jesus comes back and squares it away himself. That's when it's going to happen. And not before. So as you look at the Middle East, what you're going to see, so long as you walk on this earth, and you can quote me on this, you're not ever going to see peace in the Middle East. You as a Christian will never see peace in the Middle East. You know why I know that? Because my Bible says so. Not going to happen. You'll see times of peace, but real, legitimate peace to where everybody loves each other and there is a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount which belongs to the Jews, by the way, not the Arabs. Does anybody know when Islam came about? 686 A.D. Hadn't been around very long. So, if the Jewish people were worshipping there 
1,500 years before that, I would think that gives them first right. Amen? And yet they're the ones that are kicked out. You go to the Dome of the Rock Mosque. We actually got to go there when we were in Jerusalem in April. You know, those little Muslim cops. I don't know what you want to call them, but they were enforcers, basically wandering around the Temple Mount. Do you know that you're not actually allowed to pray out loud as a Christian? I was not allowed to bring my Bible. You caught with the Bible out, and they haul you off. I'm pretty sure that's not the kind of peace Jesus was talking about. Pretty sure. And yet that's the condition that exists today. It's not changing until the Lord comes back. As you kind of look at these things, there's a number of things that are actually being said here that are pretty amazing. But that valley that this battle, this last battle will take place in. Think back and look at your Bible, especially the book of Judges. Deborah defeated Sisera there. Gideon defeated the Midianites there. Saul died at the hand of the Philistines there. Joshua defeated the Canaanites there. Josiah was killed there by the Egyptians. It's been a, a war zone forever. Right now, people are going, oh, no, we got it under control. You know why? It's actually the breadbasket of Israel. It's like the Central Valley of California. It's farmland. So people are going, oh, see, that can't happen. But that's been the problem with mankind all along. We get a little series of you know events that kind of look like they're pointing in one direction. We say, see, the Bible was wrong. All that does to me is I look at that and I go, See, the Bible hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. doesn't bother me at all that that little area is now farmland. But for a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign over the earth. Look at verse 15 back in Joel 3 with me. It says, The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion. In that hour, the mighty lion is going to become a shelter for the people of Israel. He's going to break through the clouds, put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to protect all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Heavens, the earth will shake. But in doing so, the Lord's going to have to judge the wicked finally. And as I look at the world today, I'm glad it's not today. Because there are a lot of people that would lose their lives and perish eternally. And so I think the Lord is waiting I think the Lord has forestalled his judgment. I think the Lord has been kind in not judging the earth. He'd be right to do so, for sure. As I, as I look at the world today, it's like, Lord, how much, how much longer is this going to happen where it's going to be like this? And so God now says, you know what, sovereignly, he's going to take control of his creation. He's going to do whatever he wants. And so the Lion of tribe of Judah is going to come forth. He's going to reign from his throne in Jerusalem, according to Zechariah's prophecy. Literally, in chapter 14, verse 9, it says, over all the earth. Now, something I can tell you about today, Jerusalem has this much power over all the earth. None. Zero. Zip. The UN has had a station there, not far from the Temple Mount, that's been staffed since Israel became a nation in 1948, that has absolutely no purpose, serves no function. Because you got the Arabs on one side, you got the Jews on the other, and they don't even get involved. It's that tumultuous. And then Israel's victory that's going to finally happen. He says in verse 17, You shall know 
that I am the Lord your God. In putting that phrase together, the Lord your God, he's saying they will become saved. Because right now, he is God. He's always been God, but he's not been Lord. He's been God. God's the sovereign ruler. He just simply says God would be defined as El. When you use the Hebrew word El, it means simply God. So when you say El Shaddai, you're saying God the Mighty One. In this case, he's saying Yahweh Adonai, the Lord, who is God. The Master, who is God, the one who calls the shots, is God. And then Jerusalem shall be holy. Jerusalem today is not holy. And these things all have to take place at the time when the lion comes. So for those that say, well, the lion came in A.D. 1, okay? Common era, year zero. And then in A.D. 32, 33, he died on the cross and he ascended into heaven. And we've been in the kingdom age, the kingdom now philosophy, theology then these things make no sense. Because Jesus is not the king of Jerusalem. Amen? Matter of fact, God's not the king of Jerusalem. God's not even worshipped largely in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's fought over. Jerusalem isn't even the capital of Israel, much less the capital of the world. This says it'll be the capital of the world. Very different place. And so he's speaking of a time that actually will be at the end of the tribulation after the Lord comes back. I love verse 17. I want you to see this because there is a a special intimacy that Israel is going to find with God that they don't have right now. Whenever you read, if you want just some fun reading, go to the Temple Mount Institute, just templemountinstitute.org. And go there and read all their paperwork about how they're just complaining about, you know, the police won't let them on the Temple Mount. It's just all And rightly so. It's a very difficult situation. But if you read it, they, they don't actually spell the name God, G-O-D. It's G hyphen D. Because it's considered blasphemy to actually spell the name of God. It becomes an idol at that point in time. And so when you look at that, they don't have an intimate relationship with God. They understand that God is holy. They understand that God is righteous. But right now, because they have no temple, they can't worship correctly. So God is a very, very distant being to the Jewish people. They only have a little chunk of the western wall that they can worship at. It's not even a temple. It's just a wall. And so there isn't that deep, intimate relationship and if you go to the Western Wall, you've got armed guards stationed all over the plaza. You, you've got thousands of tourists. There's no intimacy. They don't even have literally a church, if you will. They have a spot that was adjacent to where the old temple used to stand. And they revere it. It's the most holy place in all of Judaism. But it's a wall. It's not a place where they can really worship God. It's out in the open. Matter of fact, on many days, the Arabs from up above will throw rocks down on the people worshiping at the Western Wall. Not very intimate. Verse 17, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling 
And it uses the word that actually means abiding in, setting up home in, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. And because of the phrasing that's there, there's only one place on earth that qualifies for that. And it is literally the Temple Mount. So it says that the Lord Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is no intimate relationship with the Lord that involves the Temple Mount right now. Matter of fact, if anything, it's a war zone. There's no closeness. And every time they try, every time there's, there's a release of some of the pressures that are on the Jewish people to allow them to even go on the Temple Mount, they're followed around by guards. And if it's not Israeli guards, it's Muslim guards. And God forbid that you begin to pray. They had a little incident, you may have read about it a couple of years ago, where there were some people that snuck up onto the Temple Mount, Orthodox Jews, and they took a Torah scroll. Two of them died. They were shot dead on the Temple Mount because they dared take a Torah scroll up into the plaza that's up on the Temple Mount. But finally, there's going to be an intimate relationship with the Lord that will allow them to have that close fellowship that they once had. Isaiah chapter 2 says this in verse 2, In the latter days the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established, and all nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us. He will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You get it? That's an intimate, worshipful relationship that currently does not exist. It's something that has not ever happened. Because it says, all nations shall go. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass that when everyone who is left of all of them of the nations which come against Jerusalem, in other words, it's referring to that time of the battle of Armageddon, the tribulation of days, Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. Can't worship as far as the Jews concerned unless there's a temple to worship in. Right now there's a mosque. The Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Can't keep the Feast of Tabernacles unless there's all the implements of the temple there. You have to have all of them. There's no other way. Sacrifices have to be purified. Can't happen today. And so the Lord is going to restore that intimate relationship that he had with them. When they were wandering in the wilderness, you realize that when they were wandering in the wilderness, they were the only people on earth who had an intimate relationship with God. There was one place that you could meet with God, and that was the tabernacle. And the Jews had that one place. They're going to have that back again. But they need a temple to do it in. And so God's going to restore them. It says in Isaiah 49, verse 17, For your sons will make haste to return to Israel, and your destroyers and those who laid waste to you will go away and be killed. And you will lift up your eyes and look and see, and all who gather around you shall come to you. Speaking of Israel, certainly not the case today, but God is going to restore them. And then, Finally, you're going to see these blessings that are announced here, these millennial blessings. Notice some of them in verse 18. It will come to pass in that day. Again, very, very important that you understand what that reference is to. It's the very last days. It's not in a day that was in Joel's time. It's not in a day that was in Isaiah's time. It's not in a day that was in Zechariah's time. It's in the day of the Lord. 
which we've carefully mapped out from the beginning of the study. It follows the rapture of church, follows the rise of the Antichrist, it follows the tribulation of days, it follows the second coming of Christ, it follows the battle of Armageddon in that day. It will come to pass, and the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, and the fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, which currently isn't there, remember that, and the water to the valley of Acacias, which are directly beside the Temple Mount. So the mountains are going to drip with new wine. Right now when you go to Jerusalem, there's not much in that particular area. It's a very metropolitan city. You have to go outside of the city typically to the south and to the north, get up on the slopes of Mount Carmel. Right now, that's the only place that that could happen. It says that it will be that way in Jerusalem. The hills will flow with milk. It's the same point when he says they're going to flow with wine, they're going to flow with milk. He's, He's talking about a revived area of the world. One of the strangest things about the city of Jerusalem, and and as you look at it, you look at the city itself, it is a city in hills. But it doesn't matter which direction you go, you don't have to go too very far to run into a whole lot of nothing still. As small as Israel is, there's a vast Judean desert that's directly to the east, the Dead Sea. There's no water that runs anywhere in that region. Every bit of water that's, that's in Israel right now is sucked up and used for potable water. And in fact, when you look at the towns, you can tell which ones are Arab and which ones are Jews by the color of the water tanks on the roof. And so it's a very interesting thing that's being said here that basically it's going to be prosperous again. It's not. Right now, the only reason that Jordan even has any farmlands is because they have a water agreement with Israel to take part of the water from the Jordan River to irrigate the farmlands that are on the east side of the Jordan River. And sometimes the Jews get a little bit testy and they shut off the water. And the crops die and then they fight over it. It says the whole region is going to become lush farmland again. We're going to see that also in Amos, by the way. The brooks of Judah will be flooded with water. It says there are no brooks in Judah right now. They're all dried up. There are wells everywhere. They suck every last bit of water out of every bit of square bit of farmland that they have. And it's all pumped into areas that are irrigated. For those of you that don't know, Israel invented hydroponic gardening. Reason being, they have no water. They have to be very, very, very careful about how much water they use. And in fact, when the Jewish people gave up the Gaza Strip, another one of those chunks of land that were given away, when they gave it away, in in the area of the Gaza Strip, tons of hydroponic gardens. Gardens on raised beds, very minimal water. Plants grow in very, very shallow soil. So they can use almost no water, because there isn't any. And so it says the brooks of Judah will be flooded with water. That's a contrast to the the Israel that you know today. During the tribulation, in fact, it it says that the two witnesses are actually going to cause a drought to come upon the land. And so that's still yet coming. And it would take nothing to make a drought in the land today. God forbid that they ever shut off the water that comes out of the Sea of Galilee into the Jordan River. There'd be no farmland in most of Israel. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't take much to do. And so it says that they'll flow again with water. When you go to the north of Israel and you look at the source of the Jordan River in Tel Dan, Caesarea Philippi sits there. It's one of the very few places where there's actually clear water flowing anywhere in Israel. 
that it's going to be the norm again. It's not today. As you look at what it says further, that we know that the rivers are going to turn into blood during the tribulation. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible. And yet it says the fountain of the Lord is going to flow forth from the temple mount itself. When you when you go to Jerusalem today and you go to Hezekiah's tunnel and you go down inside of these rocky caves that basically end up down in the Hinnom Valley, you can hear the water flowing in there. It just doesn't flow out anywhere. But one day it's going to flow out. And then it's going to flow towards the Dead Sea. When you go to the Dead Sea today, it's it's crazy. The water is so full of salt. It's the saltiest body of water on earth. It's so full. You've probably seen the pictures of people reading a newspaper and floating with half of their body out of the water. It's true. It's because of the specific density of the water. But what they don't tell you is it's also salt acid. There's huge signs that says, don't get it in your eyes. Don't drink it. Don't get it in you. It's like people laying in it and they're splashing around. You're like, it's poison. Why? Because there's no water flowing in the land of Judah. It's all taken up for farmland. doesn't even reach there anymore. And yet it says, in that day, the living waters will flow forth in Zechariah 14.8 towards the Dead Sea. That living water that Ezekiel talked about doing the same thing. And so those lands that have persecuted the Jewish people, God's going to deal with the past enemies. And he specifically names Egypt and Edom. That's modern-day Jordan. Right now, they kind of think they have the Jews where they want them. Matter of fact, if you travel to the south of Israel, if you go down to Elat, if you look at the Gulf of Aqaba, you have the Red Sea, the Reed Sea, and you have the Gulf of Aqaba. There's two bodies of water, and in between them is the Anvil of the Sun, the Sinai. If you look at that area of the world, the Jordanians from time to time will cut off the access that the Jewish people have to get down to the seaport that they have in Elat. They kind of think they have them. God says, not so much. Isaiah chapter 19 tells us that one day God's going to simply deal with the nations of the world and give Israel their, their due, what he had promised them all along. If you look at the history when they came into the Sinai and they began to wander in that wilderness, if you look at that area of the world today, it is the driest, dustiest desert you can possibly imagine. We have some desert here in Southern California, amen? You don't have to drive very far from here, and you'll run into some serious desert. But I'm telling you, Victorville is lush compared to the area around the Dead Sea. Okay, It is lush. That That is the Garden of Eden out there in Apple Valley compared to southern Judea. It's hot. You know, in the winter it gets really nice and cool down in the 70s. The summer, surface temperatures in the 120s. God says, I'll take care of that. I'm going to make it a garden. It says, Judah will abide forever. You see, you see, right now, the political alliances are what people are leaning on. Syria thinks that if it joins with Jordan, and they join with the Iraqis, and they join with the Iranians who are aligned with the Saudis and with the Yemenis, you get everybody together, then Israel has no chance. If I were a betting man, my money's on Israel. 
because God said so. One day, Israel is going to bloom. But before then, the Antichrist is going to rise. And I'm grateful because when I look at it, because I know that I'm saved by grace, I also know God's going to make sure that all these things come to pass when he's ready for them to do so. But the picture here is that God is so jealous for the hearts of the Jewish people that he would go to that extreme to make sure that they inherit the promises that he has for them. Don't forget the reason for all these things. God's deeply involved in our lives. He's deeply involved in their lives. He's orchestrating circumstances. He's moving the world's chess pieces around exactly the way he wants. Sometimes we don't think so. But he is still a sovereign God. And the fullness of his plans can't be thwarted. We can make it take a little longer. Kind of like we do in our lives, yeah. You've probably all done things. It's just like, man, if I'd have just gotten out of God's way, this had all been over a long time ago. Same is true for the history of the world. We may be able to hinder and cause God to work around the individual things that, that we have brought into play. But make no mistake, in the end, he wins. The Lord wins. God's people win. And Israel will become a garden again. And it will be the focal point of the world at some point in time, and literally the dwelling place of the Most High God from which Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, will rule and reign in righteousness. You can put your house on that piece of information. You can take all your bank accounts and uh, mortgages and everything else and say, I'm going with Jerusalem in the end, and you're going to come out on top. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, as, as we study these passages of scripture, it's just almost impossible to fathom that these things could ever come to pass. And yet we know that your word says it, and we certainly see uh, the signs of these things beginning to come. And Lord, we pray that as you orchestrate the pieces, Lord, as you move around kings and kingdoms, as you bring alliances of nations and allegiances of political power together, Lord, as you install kings, Lord, as you raise up presidents, as you cause Russian leaders and Iranian leaders to begin to move their their pieces into place, God, we pray that for your people, the Jewish people, Lord, we pray for their safety, we pray for their peace, how we ask you to bless them, Lord, we ask you to even Put your hand upon those who are innocent, that are in the lands that oppose them. God, we pray that you would send uh, your people to spread the good news of the gospel into Jordan and Syria, Father Saudi Arabia. We thank you for the Coptic Christians in Egypt. We pray that you protect them, God, for those that are persecuted in Lebanon. Lord, we're grateful that in the end, your plans cannot be thwarted. We bless you, we praise you, we thank you, we ask all this in Jesus' name.